Our second storytelling open mic was hosted in downtown Long Beach at the Maine Public Library. Storytellers showed up to share their response to the prompt, which asked them to tell us about a time that made them cry tears of joy. Sometimes we don't realize how special something is until we learn what it might be like without it. In the next two stories, Fat and Jared both share tales of the moment they cried tears of joy because they were faced with experiences that made them appreciate their family. The first storyteller we will hear is Fat. Hello. I didn't plan on speaking tonight either, um, but that little twist of the arm from Mariah just made me sign up. Um, so I hadn't thought about this story in a pretty long time. Um, I actually cry very easily. You know, I could have uh, talked about the most recent time, which was just a couple nights ago at uh, a friend's engagement party. You know, just congratulating him on getting engaged gets me choked up. Um, when he said that I would be one of his groomsmen, I got choked up, just getting choked up thinking about it. Um, could have talked about when my daughter was born. She's the one that's been making noise in the audience for you guys. Um, but for some reason, this other story came to mind today. Um, it's got a bit of a backstory. Um, so I was at a time in my life where I was really into traveling. I traveled a lot for my job, and so I racked up a bunch of frequent flyer miles through that. Uh, and because of that, I was kind of able to take a vacation at the end of the year. Um, and I was talking to one of my friends on the phone, and I was like, you know, I think I'm going to go to Australia because I got all these frequent flyer miles, and, you know, it costs a lot of miles to get there. I've got enough. I don't know where else to go. Why not? Uh, on the same phone call, she was telling me how she got connected with some refugees from the DRC, uh, Democratic Reco Republic of Congo, over in Africa. And this connection that she made with these African refugees. And we got off the phone, and I sent her a text message um, without really giving it much thought, honestly. And it was just like, hey, I've got all these frequent flyer miles. If you want to go to Africa, I'll go with you, and I'll, I'll get your flight for free with my miles if you just plan the whole trip. And... Uh, you know, I was serious, and she was serious, and we said, okay. And this is a friend that I had never traveled with. I'd never hung out with uh, that much besides a couple of work events here and there. Um, and she planned this whole trip. She told me what to pack in a single backpack, and we met at the Frankfurt Airport over in Germany. Um, she told me that I needed to prepare myself for what we're going to get into. Um, I was down for anything. I was just kind of along for the ride, along for the adventure. Um, she had a couple of motives going over there. Um, that I was loosely aware of, but she told me at the very least I had to watch Hotel Rwanda before we went. So I downloaded it and watched it on the plane. So my whole intro uh, to what we were going to get into was this movie that I watched just hours before I landed in Africa. If you've ever seen Hotel Rwanda, you know that it's about the Rwandan genocide, uh, and it's some really heavy stuff. And so as I'm watching this on the plane, I'm like, oh, this is what I'm getting into? <laughs> Like, I, I'm not sure if I'm prepared for that, you know, but I had no choice. So we showed up uh, pretty late at night in Rwanda, and this guy picks us up in a borrowed vehicle because he didn't have a vehicle of his own, brings us to his house where the floors are concrete and it's very minimal inside, uh, and they had food on the table that had been waiting for hours because our plane was late and they were, you know, there waiting for us. And it uh, turned out this was food that they had kind of saved and sacrificed for to be able to serve us because hospitality is so big in their culture. So here I am, like night one, and the house across the street is made of mud. And I'm like, damn, we are in Africa. Uh, so during our stay in Rwanda, we 
went to this guy's church. He was a pastor of a couple of churches, and we did things like uh, provide little feasts for these orphans that the church kind of takes care of. And there's like 150 kids, and they're eating these plates of uh, rice and beans and cabbage and a little few bits of meat that we had uh, kind of provided for them just as a way to, uh, to get to know their community and sort of experience what, what's going on there. Um, and watching these little kids just stuff their faces. Some of them threw up because they had never really eaten that much. Um, you know, the pastor told us that for some of these kids, this was like the single biggest meal they ever had in their life. Um, the pastor also told us his story of genocide survival. Um, people had broken into his church uh, while his dad was preaching when he was a kid and uh, killed just about everybody in the church, um, including them. Um, his entire family uh, was basically left for dead. Somehow they all survived, um, even after being beaten and chopped with machetes. And um, some kind of explosion went on in there as well. And they were laying there for several days before somebody uh, found them and took them to the hospital and stuff and was able to help them survive. Um, so from there, he took us to a refugee camp, a couple refugee camps where there were people from similar situations where they had fled their country or fled their villages from these genocide attacks, and they were seeking refugees, refuge in these camps. And we got to hear firsthand people's stories of what they went through, the atrocities they've seen, you know, stories of watching their family members get chopped up by machetes and, and murdered in front of them. Stories of uh, seeing their family members raped. From there, we went to Burundi, a neighboring country, visited another refugee camp. Uh, we went there in the evening, and then uh, we stayed nearby and went there again the next day. And kids in this camp were so excited to see us. They were literally climbing on each other. They were climbing trees just to get a view of us. They were just kind of making mobs. And, um, man, just kids with the biggest smiles and the biggest hearts, um, but they have so little, you know, they, they have nothing in their lives, but, but they're out there smiling and happy to see us. And these people are just happy to, to share their stories, you know, just uh, to feel like they had a voice, to feel like they were being heard. And they never asked anything from us except to just go and share their stories, <laughs> which is, I guess, part of uh, why I'm sharing this story tonight is to share their story that they're not able to tell. From Burundi, we ended up taking a 24-hour bus ride through Uganda into Kenya. We stayed with another family there that um, the refugees in St. Louis that my friend he got connected with, uh, one of her good friends that's a refugee, we stayed with his brother over in, in Nairobi, Kenya. And uh, he hadn't seen his brother in, I think, like 8 or 12 years or something. Um, their village was attacked one night, um, and everybody was being killed, and the places were being burned. And they, their entire family ran out their house and just kept running and, and never went back. Um, it took him several years to even realize that his brother was still alive and to kind of get reconnected with them. But because of the technology uh, that they had access to, they had never um, seen each other, you know, via FaceTime or Skype or anything like that. They had only communicated on the phone, but they did know that each other was alive. Their parents, on the other hand, they didn't know were alive. Uh, it would take several years later for them to uh, to actually reach their parents and and it was a total of, I think, about 15 years before they were able to reconnect with their parents. Um, there was eight people living in that house. Um, you know, 
two people on twin bunks, top and bottom, um, two other guys on this raggedy little mat on the floor that basically their feet were hanging off on the concrete floor, cockroaches and, and little lizards and geckos running everywhere. Pretty tough environment. Um, while we were staying with that family and hearing their stories, we visited uh, another church community and listened to all these uh, widows that their husbands had either been killed or had, had died because of uh, AIDS and just hearing uh, their stories. While we were there, also we, we went to Nairobi. Uh, in Nairobi, I'm sorry, we went to Kibera, which is the biggest slum, one of the biggest slums in the world. Something along the lines of a million people live in about a, a square mile or a couple square miles there. Um, all the electricity is being stolen from other places. There's no running water. There's no infrastructure for sewage or anything. Um, a million people living like that, um, just walking on trash, walking on sewage. The, the smells in that entire slum is just something you'll never forget. We were able to go inside people's homes and see how they live, uh, hear their stories of, of struggle and uh, perseverance of just them trying to live their lives, you know. Uh, so we saw a lot. So here I am <laughs> having no clue what I was getting into and, and being thrown into all these deep, deep emotional um, experiences and hearing all these deep emotional stories. Uh, towards the end of the trip, we, we took a couple days safari to kind of unwind, which was really needed because processing all of that uh, is something that's tough to do. Uh, luckily, I was with a friend there that was kind of helping me process this stuff, but, but it was tough. Uh, when I got back home, I was in a very weird emotional state, you know, just having seen all that and coming back to our grocery stores with all these options, you know, and in the slums in Kibera, they were literally selling chunks of dirt on the side of the road because you can get minerals and vitamins out of the dirt. Um, you know, coming back to my house with all these pillows that I just throw on the floor at night where they have no pillows there, you know. So it was, it was tough uh, coming back into the U.S. and coming back into my normal life. Um, it was several days before I even left my house. I was just in such a weird state that talking to anybody seemed weird because, you know, I had been through this trauma, in essence, and people didn't know what I had gone through, and they didn't know these experiences that were so fresh in my mind. Uh, after several days, uh, probably, I think it was like nine days or so that I just didn't leave, and I finally made myself leave the house and just go and, and talk to somebody. Uh, luckily, just a few days after that, I was going back to Louisiana, where I grew up, to see my family for the holidays, uh, which I had booked that trip before the Africa trip, and uh, it's a good thing I did because I needed to see my family. Um, you know, at this point, I'm in my late 20s, and I show up to my mom's house. Um, it had been 10 years since I lived with my mom, and she opened the door, <laughs> and I just grabbed her. <laughs> Just being so grateful that I had that family, I had that love, I had the privilege of growing up in the environment that I did. And then a half an hour later or so, my sister and niece showed up. My niece was like five or so at the time, and man, just seeing her little face brought all, the, all those tears of joy again. Just seeing that young, vibrant life, and that smile. I tried to hold back so that she didn't see me right away, but as soon as she walked away, man, the, the tears flooded out. And it was just all these emotions that built up over that time in Africa and being able to just release it around the people you love and the people that care about you. 
It's a powerful moment. <laughs> Thank you, guys. The next storyteller we will hear is Jared. Check. Hello. Um, so disclaimer, I hate public speaking, and I'm not a very good storyteller. And I wasn't planning on speaking, but I know Mariah, and I know Fat, and then seeing them do this makes me want to muster up some courage to do this too. So uh, Mariah asked me a few weeks ago if I were to speak, what I would speak about. And I try to think of a story of a moment when I cried. And I'm not the type of person who cries very often, so it was, it was hard. And the only one that came to mind was from 10 years ago. So I'm 29 now. My birthday was in June. This story takes place 10 years ago uh, down in San Bernardino at my hometown. I had went home to visit. I was living in Fullerton at the time, and uh, it was the day of my birthday. So um, I had a part-time job down there, and I was working <laughs> late, and I got off around 10.30, and I remember I got a text message from a friend, a coworker of mine, who had a birthday present for me, and I'm really close to their family, and they wanted me to come over and uh, have cake and just sing happy birthday and kind of hang out for a bit. So after work, I went over and saw them and did the whole dance routine, and then when I was ready to leave, it was maybe around midnight or so. It was pretty late, and they lived in like a rougher part of San Bernardino, not far from my house, but um, it, was a, it was a pretty notorious area to where I should have been more aware, and when I was walking out to my car, I, I didn't see him, I didn't notice him, I was just kind of in my zone, and I just opened the door, and I felt this, this like cold piece of metal in the back of my head, and then I heard a voice say, get in. And so I was being carjacked or robbed at gunpoint. There was this guy, black hoodie, um, dark skin, couldn't, couldn't see him, and he, uh, he jumped in with me. So uh, only time I've ever had this, this, this happen, weird feeling having someone with a gun at your head uh, have you drive them around. So it was, it was awkward. It was very silent. He had me drive him just wherever. He was just saying right, left, right, right. He had the gun at my head at first, and I remember we passed a pretty bright area. There were a lot of streetlights. And then he moved the gun down towards my stomach to take away from the visibility of everyone else around us. And um, my truck is very small. It's like two doors. It's, it's really basic. It has no power or anything, no locks, no, no power steering. It's just, it's just how it is. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know why he would want this truck. Like, it's, I don't even want this truck. And um, I can tell it was starting to get darker. So the whole time we're, we're driving, 
I'm trying to create a dialogue and and speak to him, just like little things, you know, like, hey man, you don't have to do this. Like, it's just a car. I don't care, you know. I can't even see his face. He was trying to be all incognito and um, he just like shut up and drive. And so I just kept driving. And then uh, I was paying attention to where I was going. I was looking for like street signs. And I grew up in San Bernardino, so I know the area, but um, it was just so dark. He took me to an area where there were no street lights and every house was starting to get more spread out. And each house had like a really high fence with um, just dogs in the front yard. And it was near the old Air Force Base, if anyone's familiar with that. So it's just kind of abandoned. And um, while I'm driving the whole time, I'm thinking maybe I should try to go for the gun be a hero or just take him out, drive the car into like a, a wall or something. Um, but I kind of had the vibe like he wasn't going to shoot me, but at the same time, I didn't know. Um, I just kind of had faith that everything would be okay. And so I just kept driving. And I remember the whole time I was pretty calm. Like nothing, nothing really crazy popped into my head emotionally. Uh, it wasn't until he told me to park the car and he finally found a spot that was just secluded and told me to stop the engine. And so when I did that, and I remember turning off the key, my foot, and it's a, it's a manual transmission, it, it popped and so the, the clutch gave out and the car just turned off anyways. And then um, I remember my leg was shaking so uncontrollably and I couldn't stop. Um, and it felt like I had, I had relinquished the power to him. I felt like when I was driving, I was in control. And then when I stopped, pretty much gave it all to him. So it was in his hands. There's nothing I can do. And uh, my aunt, it was a pretty hard time in my life. My, my closest aunt, my mom's sister, she had passed away. 16 days prior to this to this day um, and that that was that was hard for me that was my first experience with death and um, all I remember is thinking like this is it and I'm not a super religious person but I, I said a prayer and I was just I was just kind of like all right and Chris like I'm gonna go see you now and uh, he he just said get out and so um, I remember I tried to be a little sneaky. I had my phone kind of like in the center console and I tried to like slide it into my pocket and he saw it. And I was like, oh shoot, like don't shoot because uh, he's like, what is that? And so like, I throw my phone to him and I was like, it's nothing. And uh, um, he's like, all right leave. And so I turned my back, and that was the scariest part, is not seeing what he was going to do. So as soon as I turned my back, I just had my hands over my head and just did everything super slow as to not make uh, like a sudden movement. And then um, I started walking away. And I remember hearing the door shut and him jumping into my, my driver's seat. And 
the the car, like I said, was pretty basic. It was manual transmission. Turned out he didn't know how to drive it. So <laughs> he stole a car thinking it was automatic when in turn it was just something he couldn't even um, drive. And so it was just weird. It was, I remember walking and uh, I knew he wasn't going to be able to, to get it to go because before he even had me get out, he kind of had me like explain it to him, you know, what the pedals were. I was like, that's clutch, gas, brake, you know, gearbox, one, two, three, four, whatever. Um, like the super fast explanation of how to drive a manual car. And uh, I was just waiting for it to stall. As soon as, as, soon as he was going to stall, I was just going to take off down the street. And that's what I did. I heard it, and I took off. And I remember running as fast as I could, probably the fastest I've ever ran in my, in my life. Uh, ran down the corner, and I was like, okay, I'm going to get him now. Now it's my turn. And I remember going to the first house I saw that didn't have like a gate or a dog in the front and just banging on the door. And no answer. And it was like 12.30 at night in a pretty rough part of uh, San Bernardino. And so I'm not surprised because it took me at least like 10 tries before I actually found someone. Um, and I can see lights in the house when I was banging on the door, but I don't think anyone in their right mind would kind of just answer um, with those circumstances. And so I finally caught a lady driving up into her driveway with her little boy. I probably scared her to death, but uh, I asked her for help. She gave me the phone, and then I called 911. The cops came shortly after, and now it's probably been like 30 minutes since he's let me go, and he's still like right around the corner, or where he should be at least. Um, and I remember the cops came, and as soon as I got there, they arrested me. They put me in handcuffs because they thought I was a drug dealer and that I was just this shady character. They, they were interrogating me for like a solid 10 minutes, just asking me like what I'm doing there at this time of night in this part of the, the neighborhood. And then when I finally told them my story and they bought into it, like, okay, we'll, we'll drive you to that spot and then we'll, we'll try to find this guy. And so we did that and we pulled around the corner and he was gone. So I don't know how he got away, I know he, he didn't drive away. He probably had someone come and do it for him. But um, I remember he let me borrow his phone, and I called my mom and dad and telling them, like, what had just happened. So I won't forget it. I called my dad, and my dad's a big, tough dude. Like, he's a correctional officer at Chino Prison. Um, he's not a very, like, feelings-type guy. Um, like in my family, even with all my brothers and sisters, we don't really like hug that much or we're just not that, that type. So I remember talking to him and just like expecting the worst, like him to go off on me and tell me that I'm dumb, I wasn't paying attention and that's my fault and he didn't say any of that. He just, he was just surprised at what had happened and just really happy to hear my voice and that I'm okay. And then uh, all my family, like my grandma, my aunts, my cousins, they all live very close to me, like five minutes or so, just a few miles. Um, and he had called my grandma over to tell her what happened, and she had got there before the police dropped me off. And so 
police took me home, and then when I walked up to the front door, there was my family, my mom, my dad, my two brothers, my sister, um, my grandma, and then one of my cousins. And like, I, I won't forget it. My, my mom ran up to me and she just grabbed me and she hugged me. It's the, the hardest hug I've ever, I've ever felt. And then my dad, um, my dad just didn't say anything. He, uh, he just joined in with her and, and just grabbed me. And I didn't, I didn't cry, nothing set in at that point until I saw my grandma. And my grandma's very like traditional Mexican. So this, this part of the story always makes me laugh. But when I saw her, first thing she did is she slapped me. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then she, she just started crying. She, I've never seen my grandma cry. Uh, my, my grandpa passed away when I, was, when I was a little boy, and that's maybe the only other time I've, I've seen her cry. And when she grabbed me, I cried with her. I, I don't know how to explain it. I was just happy. To, to see my family again, happy to to hold them. And, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, I, I lost a car, but it's, it's just a material thing. You know, I'm, I'm just happy that I was able to, to, just, I don't know, to be alive. And so that's the most memorable time I've ever cried tears of joy. So just remember, it's, it's, not the, it's not what you own or, or what owns you. It's, it's the people around you that, that love you, that, that bring out that joy in you. So that's my story, and that's all I got. These stories were recorded live at the Long Beach Public Library in downtown Long Beach on November 7th, 2017. Thank you to all who attended to share and listen to stories, and thank you to the staff at the Public Library for facilitating the event, especially Artie, Sheila, Dave, Alana, Richard, and Rob. These stories, like all of the stories on our podcast, were co-produced by myself, Mariah Padilla, and were mixed, mastered, and produced by our sound artist, Alessandro Marquez. Original music for these stories is from Mark, who also played at the open mic event. We used his music and remixed it to make some of our own. Thank you for sharing, Mark. Unassuming Collective is created by Widow Fox Productions, a multimedia creative group comprised of artists, musicians, writers, and dreamers. If you like what you've been hearing, you can follow us, like us, and share us on social media. Unassuming Collective hangs out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And feel free to check out our website at unassumingcollective.com.